The Boys of Tech with Edwin Herman and Brett King. Thank you for joining us for episode 16 of The Boys of Tech, hosted by myself, Edwin Herman, and Brett King. Welcome, Brett. Howdy. As usual, it's nice to have you hosting the show with me, Brett. Yep, yep. Some good stories this week. Yes, I can see you really want to get your, your teeth into some of these, particularly our first story. Indeed. So the first story we've got is about the European Commission wanting to make software makers liable for code. So just like hardware and you know, physical products are guaranteed, uh, you know, consumer protection laws we're talking about, so will software in Europe if this goes ahead. What do you make of that, Brad? I think it sounds silly. <laughs> okay, why does it sound silly? It I thought sounds... it sounded quite good, but let's hear well, your it, side. I think it's lawmakers who are thinking in the physical world and trying to apply the concepts and the laws which govern the physical world to the digital world. And they don't work the same way. You don't have a car manufacturer releasing a beta product of their car to the public for the public to use, discover a bug, crash it, you know, whatever, fill in a feedback form, submit it back to the car manufacturer and the car manufacturer then releases their next revision of the car. That doesn't happen in the physical world. It happens all the time in the digital world. And one of the comments made by the person from the Business Software Alliance was that under their interpretation of what's coming from the European Commission is that this change will cover not only licensed released code but also beta products and it will cover both proprietary and open source software so it means that if i was producing a beta product of a piece of software to edit photos and i put it out there and somebody downloaded it and tried it and it mucked up one of their photos they could sue me because I'm liable for my code, which has mucked up their photo because it's got a guarantee over it. It's it's ridiculous. I think it depends on how it's implemented. And I, I guess that there could be one implementation of it. And to be fair, there, there we don't really know a lot of the detail and, and how this is going to work. But I surely they're not going to implement it that way. I would have thought... As in, but in, how in, are you going to... In terms of the example you gave, I would have thought it would be more along the lines of if you have some video, if you purchase a video or photo editing software suite, that it should edit photos and save photos and save their changes. And muck-ups are simply just something that you expect. Because I did say, some of the wording from some of the quotes in the story, is that you can expect that the software is going to work with fair commercial conditions. Now, I would have thought that bugs is just a an expected part of software and that's not going to be you know something that holds you liable against you know against these you know these laws surely How not gonna, you- <laughs> I don't know 
<laughs> I mean, how it, how is it going to cover? Because if well, if we I, take if we take a physical example and a a digital example of basically exactly the same thing, right? And we'll see how we reckon they're covered differently. If we take the law which covers, for instance, you've gone out and you bought a toaster, you've plugged it in, you've put your toasted it toast in it and a manufacturing flaw causes it to spark and set itself on fire now you can take that under the consumer guarantees back to the manufacturer and they'll have to pay for it right and any damages caused yeah yeah. right most consumer protection laws would cover yeah absolutely now i take this photo editing software that i have just bought and because of a inadvertent glitch in it it's mucked up a photo that I had of my, you know, I've taken of my children. And I don't, because I'm a nub, I didn't save a copy of this photo before I started editing it. And when I hit saved after I decided to take out the red eyes, suddenly my photos all blare. Under what you were saying before, you know, little glitches and that sort of thing would be expected. <laughs> but how is it different? How is if you take the same well, rules which govern the toaster and apply it to that piece of software, then it's, you know? Okay, well, yeah, look, I can't hike you with a toaster example, but what I can give you is a counterexample. What about a car? You buy a car and you drive it around, and one day you're, may, maybe you're, 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 you get a puncture in your tyre or something, you know, the clutch wears out or, or something fails, uh, you know, maybe your aircon, one of the aircon buttons fails and you, you need to get it fixed. Surely mm-hmm. those are just expected wear and tear, quirky sort of behavior and things like that. But software doesn't have wear and tear. Yeah, but it's something that's expected in a car. So surely bugs is something that's expected in software. So long as the bugs aren't, you know... <sighs> the way I would have thought it would apply is more along the lines of you pick up a piece of software and it says allows you to edit and save photos and when you install it you find that sure it edits your photos but you can't save because they've forgotten to put in the save function that's what I would have thought this is more about and I, if that's what it is I think that's great because it should do what the box says it should do but I agree with you that if it's gonna if it covers every little you know, quirkiness and bug, then I, I think it's silly. It's, I don't see how it would cover the situation that you were talking about. Because if we're talking about a situation where it says on the box that you've purchased that it does this particular thing and then you discover that it doesn't, there will almost certainly be a patch or an upgrade out there which puts that feature back in. So will there with bugs, you could argue. Yeah. There is already a process for most of these things to oh, so fix, you're saying it's not, to remedy not, these so, situations. So you're saying this is not needed. But what if it? What if it's a lie? I'm saying what, that what if, it's it it as it is for physical products. That sort of guarantee should not be covering digital content. Okay, so if we if I'm a consumer and I buy a piece of software and it just doesn't fulfil its duty should i not have any recourse should i not be able to go back and to to the vendor or the the store and say look this isn't really fit for its purpose at all but you already can Can when you've purchased a physical product the box in the store that hasn't done what it's supposed to do you can take it back in some depends on the reseller actually as to whether or not they will take it back because of the inherent copyability of software 
it is buyer beware. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's going to depend on how this is implemented, but I, I, I can see their, I can see their intent. Their intent is so that when a person gets a piece of software, and this is the what they're saying to what they're going to be doing is not just working for you know software a product that you've purchased but it would cover as the the BSA person has said it would cover beta code it would cover software not purchase software but software that is covered by licenses license content and as we know open source software is all covered by some variation of an open source license so it would come under it would be covered by this and it would not necessarily mean the I've bought a piece of software that doesn't allow me to save photos when it said that it allowed me to save photos. It's I've bought a piece of software that is going to allow me to easily upload video to YouTube. However, I've installed it and unawares to me and unbeknownst to the coder themselves, there happens to be a way to exploit this piece of software to suddenly install a bit of malware on a computer that has it installed. Then you as the software writer or the software producer would suddenly become liable because your code allowed that computer become in t to become infected. Well... Yeah, I mean, you, you, okay, you, you are not the. Yeah, I do. I yes, that that is correct. I do. I see where this could go, and I guess this is one. Of, you know, one of the things we we don't really know the details of how how it's going to impl be implemented and what it's going to cover. And you're not the only one to criticise it. I mean, the, as you said, the BSA, which is the Business Software Alliance, uh, representing you know the likes of Apple, IBM, Microsoft, etc. They are criticising it. But I put the question to you: Do they have a fair point in criticising it, or do you think that just it's just an admission that their software really isn't up to scratch and they've been getting away with it for years. It's a little of column A. Well, actually, it's a lot of column A and a chunk of column B. Software is inherently buggy. I will challenge you to show me a piece of perfectly working code that is more than, you know, 10 lines long. Once again, this perfectly working piece of code, show me that it's going to work on my home PC, my office laptop, and the PC I built out of junk. Yeah, now, is it, does, it, does this mean, does this law mean that the software is going to have to support all the new hardware and all the different types of hardware? I'm not so sure that it's... I, I don't know. I think what our conclusion really can only be that we, we just don't have enough information on this well, on, on the details it, of it because I, I can't see this being enforced to say that, yes, it must work and it must work to these standards and it must not fail in these ways and it must work on all hardware. Otherwise, it's not really you know a piece of software that does what it should. Surely it, it's, it can't include all that. It really depends and it really depends on what sort of coverage they put over it. The EU Sales and Guarantees Directive has physical products are expected to carry a guarantee of two years. Now, depending on how that is implemented for software, that could be that that software has to work on anything for that two years. Which is impossible. Which would mean that producing that software, you would have to be constantly looking at the hardware that was coming out and making sure that you put out updates and patches for that software so that it would work on whatever the consumer who bought it had for those years. 
or you're going to have a product, you know, let's say you put out a piece of software now and then at the end of this year, Windows 7 came out and it swept the world. Everybody upgraded to Windows 7 because if you didn't, you were dumb. Then you've got a piece of software that doesn't support Windows 7 that you just put out, but you've got to cover that for two years. It yeah, would, that, that would know, be tough. That would be tough. It would be tough. Because that's that's the reason. I, th- I mean, I'm assuming common sense is going to prevail here and that it's going to only apply insofar as what the box says it does is what it will do. So on the back of the box, it says it will allow you to edit and save your photos in Windows XP, for example, and that, you know, with Vista or if win- with Windows it 7, depends. But there's no expectation it- that it's going to. But it completely depends on what your interpretation of it is your right to get a product that works with fair commercial conditions. Yeah, that's true. The, what are these? Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's true. And I are we guaranteeing yeah. that the are we guaranteeing consumers that this software will work on whatever they've got for the next two years that they will be able to use it for the next two years, or are we saying that for the next two years we guarantee that the software will work on its recommended specs? Well, I'd like to see how this this may not even go ahead. Actually, this is just a proposal, of course, at this point. Mm-hmm. But it is going to be interesting to see what happens if and when it, it will does. be interesting to see some real, actual thinking behind how they would implement that sort of consumer guarantee, some consumer protection over digital content. So, Brett, do you agree that there must be some level or of consumer protectionism as far as software goes, or none at all? I think for software that you actually pay for, you should have the expectation that what you're paying for is going to do what you're, what you're thinking. But if I get a piece of free software that I can download, I don't expect <laughs> to be able to sue the person who wrote that code if, for instance, it doesn't work quite right because it happens to be written by a 15-year-old genius in his mother's basement. It's, I don't expect to be able to sue him. But what if, if it I deleted all it? your files? What if all your files are now gone? Would well, then I would have been a complete and utter idiot to have downloaded something random without checking it out first. Right, so buy beware in that case. It is, <laughs> install a beware. There's got to be... Some level of that. There's got to be some level of common sense behind this stuff. People are putting far too much emphasis on creating laws and regulations to dictate how things should be done. Common sense would override all of these rules. Common sense says that if I randomly download something that I have not heard of before, that I have not checked out just because it had a nice flashy header that said, I can do this for you and I'm free, and then it deletes my files or installs a malware program, then that is my own stupidity. But if I went out and I actually paid money for something, then I expect it to do what it's going to do. Okay, so just to clarify your position, comment on this example. Should there or shouldn't there be any protection for this? I purchase a piece of software, either on the box or maybe even just on the website, it says, allows you to edit and save photos. Also features ability to upload to Flickr and Facebook. And you think, that's great. 
I, I use Flickr and I've got a Facebook account as well. So what you do is you install the piece of software, you go about editing your photos, you save them, and then you, you decide you're going to upload them. And you click the upload button and you see Flickr there, but you don't see Facebook. And there is no Facebook feature at all. It was a misprint, it was misrepresented, or whatever. Should you be able to have some recourse on that? It depends on how the person who produced it goes about either putting an addendum out that says, no, no, we couldn't do Facebook, or Facebook is going to be an upgrade, or whatever. But if that was the only reason you bought it, surely you'd want your refund. You'd want to go back and say, look, I bought this because I've got Facebook. Okay, I might use Flickr, but I don't use it that much. It's really primarily for Facebook. Oh, yeah. I I would expect then that the person who produced it because I purchased it would, if that was the only reason I had got it, was the fact that I could do the editing and then it would auto-upload to Facebook, then I would expect the person to refund my money. So that's reasonable, right. Or that the upgrade would be coming relatively quickly, or if it was a misprint, then yes, I would expect it to be refunded because I had actually physically paid for it. Yeah, okay. Yep. But, but what you're saying is you, just don't, you don't just take a physical model and, and, and say, well, it's now going to apply to software. If it blows up something, they're liable. If it deletes all your files, you're, you're liable. If there are any bugs and therefore prevents you from doing something, they're liable. That's nonsense. That's, That's nonsense. what you're saying, isn't you it? You cannot take something that works verbatim over the physical world and think that it's going to work verbatim over the digital world. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. Okay. All right. We'll park that one. And uh, moving on to story number two, researchers – this is a great story. Researchers have basically hijacked a botnet. So the good guys get control of a botnet. That's not almost as interesting as how they did it. The, re- the, the, the way they did it is they found by examining the code of the way these you know, the, the malware works is that to find an update, because you see these pieces of malware that control these botnets get updated every so often by the controllers to, to find out what to do next or what to attack or what to where to send its findings. And they found that it was actually looking ahead at domain names that didn't even yet exist. So the creators are effectively future-proofing themselves and later they would go ahead and register those domain names and use that to, to send updates. So what the researchers did was they registered those domain names because they found out what they were and they were able to take control of the botnet for a while. Isn't that, isn't that awesome? That is pretty, that's pretty good. That's very clever. It is very clever. It is very clever indeed. They had a lot of I, well, I was slightly disappointed with the fact that they didn't do anything above observing it. They had this botnet at their feet and all they did was observe what it did and who it interacted with. They didn't try to, you know, usurp its ability to you know, discover who it was, who was controlling it. They didn't introduce anything into this botnet which would go and unbotnet. They just watched. Yeah, but remember, they got cut off ten, uh, you know, after ten days because ten days into this, the the controllers managed to issue an update. So I'm not sure what they would have done in the, in the you know if they had control for a lot longer. Maybe they would have tried to 
disable it. But, you know, collecting information, they collected some valuable information. You know, things like 28% of victims, they found, reused the same credentials on websites. Mm-hmm. I must admit, I do that. Well, indeed. <laughs> well, you know, when you've got, you know, 45 passwords to remember. Well, exactly. You, kind of have you, to you start to, you start to categorize. Is this essential? Do I care if this gets found out? <laughs> Does it have anything important or confidential? And if no, it gets a crap password that's easy to remember. <laughs> and if it's something that's important, then it gets a unique password just for itself. <laughs> yeah, I, I do the same. In fact, I've got like three tiers of passwords. My my unique passwords, my my good password, if you like, that gets used only on a very on very few sites, and mm-hmm. then sort of ge- uh, generic um, use for for the rest of the site's password. Yep. But the, you know they 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 captured some inter- interesting data on this, and they learned a lot. They learned a lot they, from from this. They did learn a lot. Yeah. Uh, I know what you're saying. It would have been nice to have seen them destroy the spotnet, and it you know, would have been but, nice to see them do something more interesting than just sit back and watch. <laughs> yeah, it I was know. ten days they had control well, of it. Yeah, what? but ten days goes quickly. Ten days does go quickly, but if they managed to, you know, usurp it in the first place by giving it an update when it came to talk to them, they could have done something better <laughs> to turn it off <laughs> but perhaps they wanted to observe it and were, were as you say going to do something about it afterwards but the people retook control of it another interesting statistic that came out of this was that 40% of the credentials stolen by the malware was from browser password managers and not from actual login sessions Mm, so that just goes to show you that if you're letting your browser save your username and password for logging into bank accounts or, or credit information or medical records or any sort of really confidential personal information, then you shouldn't <laughs> because the password, the browser store, the browser password cache is nowhere near as secure as you think. And that's why we need consumer protection laws to cover software. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't. <laughs> oh dear oh dear yes yes indeed Edwin so that we all are only using the one web browser because that's the only web browser whose researchers had enough money to dedicate to full on quality assurance <laughs> I'm going to have to move this, this story along because we're, <laughs> we're going to go back to that original story I can see this <laughs> yeah look uh, but that was that's, that was an interesting exercise they did um, oh, I thought the most in- yeah. interesting part about that was the fact that they found that 0.1% of victims love to exchange insulting emails online. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I saw that stat too. And that 4% spend their time looking for, well, you know, (laughs) intimate (laughs) meetings, (laughs) so to say. (laughs) Read between the lines. Hey, another interesting thing that that was done out there is uh, a patent that Google filed, which kind of reveals how it does its book scanning. As you know, Mm -hmm. Google are busy scanning a whole heap of Books, uh, real books, you know. We're talking about pieces of pulp with ink on them. And, oh. and as you know, a book's never flat. And so people often wondered, how do they scan it? Because as you, you know, if you've ever tried scanning something and performing OCR on something that's not flat, it's so distorted, it just doesn't get it. 
So the, the patent, just in a nutshell, basically uses a pattern that is projected onto the book and a stereo camera captures the image of that pattern which then works out its distortion. Knowing its distortion means the cameras that take the still photos know how to undistort it and then OCR can happen. Mm. It's very smart. <laughs> it's a really, really good way to do it. Yeah. Now they just need to put in the, we just need to find the patent for the automated thing which turns the page. <laughs> oh, yeah, because <laughs> I'm sure they don't have someone there turning page by page and pushing a button. Well, indeed, <laughs> especially seeing as they've already scanned, what, 7 million books or so? <laughs> that, ma- that many already, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it's it's a really, really interesting um, patent they've got there. That's some that's some good outside-the-box thinking. Yeah, there's some smart guys at Google. Very smart mm. guys. Yeah. <laughs> and that way they don't have to deface a book. Don't need to cut the book up. Yeah, because I, I which did was wonder. The, the, yeah, which was the yeah. most scanning. For instance, scanning that we do at work. We, If it's a library book, then it's the old manual labor pressing the book page against the scan uh, the the scanner to attempt to get a flat page, or if it's a manual or some kind of ready produced book, then the spine gets cut off it, and the pages are then fed through a document feeder. Yeah, that's the way you'd <laughs> a think destruction of, of yeah. the book, and it's not what you want to do with the some of the books that the Google would be scanning. No, some of these historic books you would you would definitely not do that. So, no, they've they've got a very smart smart way, very smart way of scanning and determining the 3D surface in order to in order be able to, to un- de-warp it. Yeah, de-warp. It's great. Yeah, love it. <laughs> it's exactly what you would expect from Google. Mm. It's their hard, <laughs> their hard spent research and development money right there. Absolutely. And, you know, Google last week, I think we reported, had some goats and they were very proud about having these goats as a way of keeping the lawns trim mm. around the perimeter, uh, you know, as you know, being very green. But, no pun intended, by the way. But Yahoo actually point out very smugly that, in fact, they had goats two years ago. <laughs> and there's, there's a Flickr post to prove it as well. So <laughs> Yahoo are kind of you know, sticking it to them and saying, well, you know, we had, to, we had goats too. Yes. Well before you. We had goats before you. There is prior goat art. <laughs> I'll, give, I'll, I'll tell you what, though. I'll give Yahoo a big zero to their marketing department, who obviously didn't make a song and dance about this as they should have two years ago. Indeed. Indeed. Two years ago, they should have been jumping up and down that they had goats. Either that or they did, but no one cared because it was <laughs> Yahoo. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Because green wasn't quite as in back then. No, that's true. We are becoming more and more green. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, Dell has uh, added Dick Smith in Australia to its retail roster. Which is really interesting for an online-only selling model. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. This is, that's what I thought. I'm not sure whether I, uh, I can yet say I told you so, but I, I, some years ago I did, you know, having, uh, having looked at Dell's model, I did say I don't know that that's going to work in the consumer market. Maybe for business, but I don't see this working in the consumer market. I don't know if that's a sign of me being right or it's just, well, you know, Dell adapting simply because, you know, times are changing and they're going to run both in parallel. But, mm. I mean, we've, we've had Dell selling uh, through retail chains here in New Zealand for a while at the warehouse. We have, yes. 
So would you prefer to buy a computer in a store, Brett, or online? Personally, if I trusted the online retailer, then probably online, because I've bought computer-related peripherals online before. But what about a whole system? Um, what about a whole system from Motorgo? But a whole, whole system? System? Well, being a one of the people who's not quite as um, in the mainstream uh, now as we were in the past, I am a builder. <laughs> I buy bits and then build it. And I've bought my bits online for many years for multiple of my PCs. But I do know that people like to be able to hold and touch what they're buying when they're about to make a big purchase. You don't generally buy a $2,000 you know, 42-inch television online. You go down to the store and yeah, watch it true. working yeah. before you shell out your $2,000. And I think for a lot of people, computers are the same thing. You want to, the consumer wants to see it work. They like to touch it and look at it. And does it look pretty? Does it, does the picture look great? Does, will it match my drapes? Those sorts of questions go through when you're about to shell out a large amount of money for an appliance. It's unless you really knew the reseller, then I would say a lot of people would want to be able to touch it first. I guess you and I aren't a good typical example. But so what you are saying is that your average mum and dad purchaser would probably prefer to go to the store, touch it, feel it, see what it looks like, have a go on the keyboard – and then, mm. and then they'll they'll buy it from there rather than going straight to the web saying, where's the best deal for a computer? Yeah, where's the de- best deal? Let's have a look at a couple of pictures. Yeah, that looks that looks pretty cool. That'll work. And then pushing go, send me my computer. I think, yeah, I guess I'm comparing it to the uh, online selling of produce. Right. So a lot of um, supermarkets have had online delivery where you can order your vegetables and your canned soup, etc., online and have it delivered to you. But that hasn't made supermarkets disappear, has it? No, that's true. That's true. Because people because like people to go like, yeah. and see what they're about to buy and, and hold it. And, and smell it. And all, smell it's it. It's all part of it, yeah. And that whole physical part of it is part of the purchasing and bonding process, I think. And I think it's the same with computers and other appliances. You don't buy toasters online, do you? No, you go down to the store and you pick one which, when you look at it and you see it, is going to match with whatever else you've got and is going to hold the appropriate number of pieces of toast of the correct size. It's hard to judge those sorts of things from measurements and a photo on the internet. So a lot of that sort of stuff is is still that whole physical part of it, going down and looking at it, I feeling do, it. I do wonder how... goes along with the buying of it. Well, I do wonder how Dell has been getting away with selling online only or almost exclusively for so long at least in the consumer market. I, I don't quite know how they've managed to... I, uh, probably because of their advertising. It's it's everywhere. It's on television. It's handouts in the newspaper. Magazines. magazines. Yeah, that's true. They do it's do a lot of that. Online ads, all those sorts of things. It's And they're, they're big in business and they've got relationships with a lot of businesses. So people become familiar with the brand 
when the Dell, when you're at work and the Dell is sitting in front of you, it's a computer brand that you know when you go home and you need a new PC at home for your, for your kid. So I wonder then why you can ask the question a different way. Why is it then that the likes of Samsung and LG and Panasonic don't do the same thing? You know, buy our 42-inch plasma TV online. Here's the offer. Visit panasonic.com slash TV. I think it's because when you're buying a television, you want to see what you're getting. You want to see what the picture is. Surely you want it for a computer as well. Yeah, which is probably why Dell is now going for physical retailers. It's an interesting one. Well, it's something that's baffled me for a while anyway, so there we go. It's all part of human nature. It's Some people will be perfectly fine with, you know, going, oh, I want a 42-inch television. Google 42-inch television reseller price comparison New Zealand and finding a bunch and going, oh, I'm going to buy that one. Click online, credit card details, yada, yada, and in two days, your TV arrives. But I think... I, I would hazard a guess that the majority of people would be, I want to buy myself a big television. I'm going to go to a television store <laughs> and I'm going to look at a whole heap of televisions until I find the one which screams out to me, buy me, I'm yours. And then they're going to go, that's what I want. <laughs> I want that television right there. The picture is exactly how I want it. It's the right size. I like the color, those sorts of things. It's that physical interaction with the product. You can only conclude that what you said must be right because these you know, bricks and mortar stores exist and that costs a lot to run a, a physical store. You've got staff, mm. you know, floor staff to pay, you've got rent to pay, you've got power and all the rest of it that comes with a you know, bricks and mortar store. So Mm-hmm. I think you're right. I think most people do 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 that, which is why it's baffled me about this whole Dell selling online. But as you said, maybe they're catering for you know the niche market that are happy to buy online because they weren't mm. being catered for before, at least not by by a, a big brand. Yeah, yeah, they they weren't being catered for before, and there is a market. There are people who do every buy everything online, sight unseen. There there will always be people who. It doesn't matter what it looks like as long as it meets my requirements. I don't care. I don't need to see it first. I'll just pay my money and have it delivered. But then there will always be the people who want to see it first, who want to weigh up the options. They don't want to look at price comparisons and product specifications on their computer and then pick which which television they want. They want to go to the store. They want to see what each of the televisions look like, what each of the pictures look like, how well it sounds, all of those other aesthetics, physical qualities of the product before they go and buy it. And some of them might even want to listen to what the salesperson has to say as well. Indeed. Indeed. Alrighty. Well, look, that's, that's our uh, international stories done. On to our one big New Zealand story, the spat between Vodafone and Telecom. Now, since our last episode, during this week, a lot has happened. Vodafone has taken Telecom to court, saying that their new 3G network is interfering with their signal, and that Telecom's liable for call losses and uh, other interference that Vodafone customers have been experiencing. 
It went to court. They had a day in court, but it wasn't resolved in court because they settled out of court. And we don't really know the details of the settlement, but we understand that Telecom will be installing filters on their transmitters. Mm, I think it was kind of presumptuous of Telecom to think that they could get away with having their 3G signal so very close to Vodafone signal and not have frequency filters installed on their transmitters. They were going to they were trying to get away with not having to install filters. And I think that is what caused this whole thing. Whether or not there was radio bleed. Telecom has produced reports from the radio spectrum management people that have said that they've tested Telecom's signal and it meets the requirements of their license. But who's to say that that's in every situation? Perhaps it was one transmitter which was, you know, fluctuating or whatever and was interfering with Vodafone signal. But Telecom was trying to get away with doing it without having to install filters. And so it was causing interference with Vodafones because their frequencies are very close. And there have been plenty of cases internationally of these two frequencies, these specific two frequencies, working perfectly fine together as long as filters have been installed. And now they've settled out of court and Telecom is going to install the filters and they haven't said who's going to pay for who's paying for the filter. Yeah, ru- actually, yeah, rumours are that Vodafone will be contributing to the cost, but it's only a rumour. We don't really know the details of the confidential Indeed, bill, indeed. And, and theoretically, you'd think it would be Telecom having to pay for the cost for their own filters, and Vodafone would be having to pay for the cost of filters that they required. Well, if the Vodafone this- system was bleeding out over Telecoms, then Vodafone should pay for the filters to, to make sure that they're system stays within the confines of their license and their operating parameters. Ah, well, maybe that's what the deal is. Maybe they both are going to be installing filters on their respective networks. We, we, we don't know, but... We don't know, but I, I, would, I, I, can I would not expect Vodafone to be paying for telecoms filters. <laughs> Vodafone is, should if, be paying for their own filters. The thing is, if the emissions from the telecom transmitters are compliant, I can... I can't really understand why Vodafone is doing what it's doing other than, well, I can only assume that Vodafone are doing that simply because they're the competition and they want to stall the big launch of Telecom's new 3G network. On the other hand, like, you know, if Vodafone really does have a case, they would be taking it to court and the fact that they initiated court action might suggest that they really do have a they case. Really, and they the really did have a case because... Coupled with the fact that telecom are now are going to be installing filters, we know that much, you kind of mm-hmm. think, well, there, there must have been something going on. There must have been something going on for them to settle out of court and filters will be installed. So Vodafone must have had some actual evidence that showed that telecom's frequencies, telecom's um, transmitters were bleeding over were interfering with Vodafone's network. Whether or not that was on purpose or accidental, that's, you know, irrelevant. Well, there, but, there is one other scenario, mm-hmm. and that's Bruce Simpson's view that, as we know, Vodafone and Telecom have long had a duopoly situation in the New Zealand telecommunications market. There really mm-hmm. isn't a lot of true competition, or at least not until now. And Bruce Simpson reckons that it's all an act. It's all an act to prevent the Commerce Commission from coming down on Telecom and Vodafone about their lack of competition, about their anti-competitiveness, 
And it's just a measure to pretend that there is competition in order to protect them from the Commerce Commission. Well, you never know. You never know. It, it'd probably cost your, them less than... I could put on my tinfoil conspiracy theory hat here and go, oh, it could be. It could be. <laughs> no one will really know the answer to that unless you're in the... Unless the you're in the know. Well, yeah. Within Telecom or Vodafone, Vodafone, you will not know. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, that's the way it is with a conspiracy. If it could easily be shown one way or the other, it wouldn't be a conspiracy then, would it? Well, by definition, absolutely, <laughs> And it wouldn't be anywhere near as fun. No, well, that's for, that's for sure. Actually, Telecom has come out and said, hey, this has actually been really good PR for us. And they're kind of almost thumbing their noses at Vodafone saying, hey, you know what you did? You actually did us a favor because, look, we've got all this great PR about our great new network. Everyone knows about it now. And, you know, it's done us. you've done us a favor. I don't know if, they're re- if they really mean that or if they're just saying that because that's the thing to say. Mm. Uh, you know. Well, it depends. It, it would have brought the new network to a lot more people's attention, but will it be people who are going, well, that's that's telecom stepping on somebody else's toes when they shouldn't be. That's telecom doing the dodgy to other people and then knowing about the network and having a little bias about somebody bullying somebody else or who knows. Mm. Uh, you're right. It has, I mean... Okay, Telecom's correct in saying that it's certainly uh, brought this out in the open and made people more aware, but whether it's to their benefit or not, who really yeah. knows? Who really knows? Well, we'll only know in the future when they start releasing figures for a number of people connected to their different networks. That's for sure. That's true. Alrighty, well, that's our show for this week. That's number 16. Number 16. Alrighty. Excellent. All right, thank you very much, everyone, for joining us. Brett, thank you for hosting the show with me. Always a pleasure. And we'll see everyone again next week for episode 17. Bye-bye.